Good afternoon. The book of Esther, as we've covered twice now, and I'm sure that most of us are very familiar with, contains one of the most powerful stories of godly courage and deliverance for all of God's people. A young lady who was placed in a situation that she probably never saw herself in as a child, never saw herself in, maybe even when she entered the king's palace. But because of the encouragement of her of her cousin and the boldness of God, she helped bring deliverance for her people. The story is gripping and it's inspiring. But if you take a step back and you look at this, the settings of this story, it's in the wrong place. It was a Gentile and not a son of David who was their king. The location is Shushan, the capital of the Medo-Persian Empire, not Jerusalem. Jerusalem was 900 miles away. They had no king of David sitting on the throne. They were strangers in a foreign land, living and serving a foreign king. But not every story of the Bible is has its setting in Israel. We can start all the way at the, the book of Genesis. Noah and his faithfulness before the flood wasn't in Jerusalem, wasn't in Israel. Abraham's faithful adherence to God's commands began in Ur of the Chaldees. Moved to the Canaan land, God promised that, that land to him, and then he continued on to Egypt, still faithfully serving the Lord. Moses, he began his life in Egypt. He was a timid shepherd who eventually rose up to become the lawgiver and the leader of the nation, bringing them out of Egypt to Mount Sinai and through the wilderness to the borders of the Promised Land. And then we skip to the Old to the New Testament. And we have story after story of the mighty works that God worked through the hands of the apostles in nations far flung from the borders of Israel. God can certainly do mighty works through people and it doesn't have to be within the constraints of, of Israel or within Jerusalem. But what draws our attention today, or at least for the next few moments, is not that, that the setting is outside of Israel, but I'd like for us to look at the reasons why the Jews were now calling a foreign land home. And it's within the title of this lesson. It was because of unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness of a nation... 900 years before these moments. It was unfaithfulness which took them away from their promised land. Unfaithfulness which placed them under the rule of a foreign king, of those who hated them and actively schemed for their demise. It was the unfaithfulness of fathers, of grandfathers, of great-grandfathers, which created the situation where the Jews throughout Persia were now reading a decree allowing everyone to annihilate them. We can sit there and we can probably put ourselves in their situation, in their shoes, and they're reading this, and the whole city is perplexed. Where is this coming from? Why is this trouble come upon us? Well, let's take a step back. God had given Israel a promised land. He had given them that land of milk and honey, a land to be their own, a place where they were to perpetuate through all the years enjoying God's blessings. 
you will, I'd like for you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28, starting with verse 1. The book of Deuteronomy is filled with encouraging words from Moses as he stands before the nation, pleading with them to faithfully follow God's laws and telling them, if you just do these simple things, these are the bountiful blessings that will come upon you. Starting with verse 1, Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all His commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, and the offspring of your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your storehouses and in all to which you set your hand. And He will bless you in the land which the Lord your God has given you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to Himself. Just as He has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in His ways, then all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will grant you plenty of good in the fruit of your body, and in the increase of your livestock, and in the produce of your ground, in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you His good treasures, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season, and to bless the work of your land, your hand. He shall, you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. If you do these things, if you follow the Creator of the earth, and faithfully hear these commands that are meant for your good, look at what God will do for you. Now we look at these things and we think, boy, I, I really wish I had that. But don't forget that in the book of Hebrews, we're told that the new covenant is based on better promises. We have a better covenant with better promises. I may plant a garden and nothing grows up. That doesn't mean that God has left me, but I have blessings today that the Jews didn't have. And so do you. As we turn our eyes back to the Jews, it is a promise that came with a catch. Yes, God will do all of these things for you and bless you beyond measure. But in Deuteronomy 4, 26 and 27, he says, with this warning, but take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day, that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess, and you will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. God will bless you, but don't make false gods. Don't craft something by your own hands and bow down and give homage to it. Because when you do this, God will take you out of this land and you will serve foreign gods.
Well, where did this all begin? Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 through 18. Uh, let's go ahead and turn to this passage, actually. Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 through 18. Before this, Moses had said, the nations that surround the promised land, you can make treaties with them. If they come to you and want a treaty, and they're not of the promised land, yes, you can make a treaty. But starting with verse 16 of Deuteronomy 20, it says, But of the cities of these people, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. If it's another nation outside of your inheritance, make peace with them if you want. But if you're going, if it's any place that you're going to live, Nothing that breathes is to be remain alive. It's, and God gave a reason. Because if you don't, it's going to be a snare to you. Their gods are going to be a problem. The book of Joshua, we hear that Moses, Moses has died. Excuse me, the book of Judges. Moses has died. Joshua and the, and the nation has gone into the promised land. They've, they fought the, these battles. They've claim their inheritance, but not entirely. In verse 2, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I led you up from Egypt, and I swore to you, and I brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So this is where it begins. This is where the unfaithfulness begins that brings us to the story of Esther and why they're living in a foreign land serving a Gentile king. Because their forefathers chose that they did not want to fight the battles of God. We're going into this land... We're not going to fight these battles. Let's make peace with them. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of these battles. I want to just be at peace. I want to settle down. I want to raise my family. Let these people do whatever they want. We'll make peace with them. So they did. They didn't fight God's battles. And God said to them, their gods will be a snare to you. Because if you're not going to fight for me, I'm not going to fight for you. So it's the story that I think we're all familiar with. Hosea chapter 4, verse 12, hundreds of years later, My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them, for the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. Gradually, generation by generation by generation, what was the snare became the hobby that now becomes the habit. They didn't go to Jerusalem anymore to inquire of a God. They now went to their high places. They now went into their homes to look at the idols that they had crafted, that they had carved, that were made out of those trees that were in their backyard. 
those gods that could not speak, that could not see, that could not answer, those were now their guards. Gods, those were where their heart was directed to. And because of that, in 2 Kings chapter 17, speaking specifically of the nation of Israel, God said, or God took them away. The Assyrian king ripped them out of the land of Israel and just scattered them across his own land because they failed to faithfully follow the law of the Lord. They served idols and they forfeited their rights to claim the promised land as their own. So 900 years before, people just didn't want to fight. They were unfaithful and they gave up. So idolatry brought about the spiritual collapse of Israel, and so God allowed captivity to come upon them. But as already been mentioned, the story of Esther is not during the captivity. It's after Jews had the opportunity to go home. It's 53 years after the Jews were given the opportunity, go back. If you want to go back to Jerusalem and restore your temple, if you want to go back and restore your worship and to worship the God of your forefathers, go. I'll pay the way. I'll give you the money, is what the king said. But not everyone went back. We don't know the reasons why for each specific person. Some may thought may have been too old. They didn't think that the, they could handle the journey. We certainly... I think you can make a pretty good assumption that there were a lot who just really liked it in Persia. They just didn't want to go home. They didn't feel like they were Jews anymore. They felt more Persian than Jew. So they stayed. Now when we see, as as Dane has already mentioned, Mordecai doesn't seem to have had that mindset. We don't know why he stayed. But many stayed for reasons that were not right. They stayed because they just just wasn't worth it to go back home. So the Jews in Shushan reading the decree allowing their annihilation didn't have to be there. That wasn't where the story had to take them. The nation was scattered by the Assyrians and the Babylonian empires because their forefathers did not faithfully execute the commands of God. The people turned down an opportunity 50 years earlier to return home and opted to remain in a foreign land. Because of unfaithfulness, trouble found them. And that trouble became came in the name of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. So what does all this mean for us? Well, let's go back a little further in history to King Hammurabi. King Hammurabi was of the Babylonian Empire. Not the Babylonian Empire that we know of in the, in the Old Testament, but but hundreds of years before that. And he did something interesting. He took the law and he inscribed it on a pillar of stone, this obelisk or something, and he put that out in the public for public view. This was, this was radical. Because what it did is the law is now there for, pub, for the public to view, to read, to understand, and to know what, what the law's expectation for them was. It was available, easy to find, easy to understand. The same holds true for God's desires for you. God hasn't hidden His desires. He wants good for you. He wants you to avoid sin. He wants you to flee from it. And He's given it to you right here. And it's easy. 
It's easy to understand. And when Moses was talking to the Israelites, he said, The commandments of God are not too mysterious for you, nor is it afar off, but the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. It's right here. None of us have the excuse to stand before the Lord and say, I just, I didn't know. I couldn't find it. No, it's here. Read it. Know it. Understand it. Believe it and trust it. God has given us clear expectations, clear descriptions of sin. And for our good, the Bibles that your great-grandfathers and great-grandmothers read is the same Bible that you have today. That word has not changed. Men's standards may change. My girls are always telling me, Dad, what you told, what you told Sarah isn't what you told me. You change, well, we can change our minds. And they remind us all the time when we change our minds, when we're not being consistent. Praise God that He doesn't change His mind. I don't have to try and hit a moving target. It's right here. Right for me to read. And praise the Lord that He showers blessings of mercy and grace upon us despite our shortcomings, despite our failures and the hiccups that we have in life, those times where we focus on the wrong things and get it wrong. But each day is a day of blessing to get it right and to fix it. But there will come a point where our shortcomings become unfaithfulness and the Lord will allow trouble to come upon us. That trouble will find us. And my hope is that trouble, if it comes upon me as a means of correcting me, comes in this lifetime rather than eternity. But don't fool yourself. Trouble will come for unfaithfulness. We cannot continue to violate God's laws and refuse to keep the covenant. To say, I'm going to choose the flesh rather than the spirit and, and think we're going to get away with it. And think that God is going to continue kicking that can down the road. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is powerful and He will forgive. But He is also just. And there are consequences for unfaithfulness. Sometimes we deceive ourselves like the unfaithful servant. Who when his master left, his master said, I want you to stay in charge of this house. So that servant became wicked and he beat his fellow servants. He didn't know when his master was coming home, but he said, my masters, he's not going to come for a long time. He's going to delay his coming. He's not coming today. And Jesus said that the master will come on a time where that servant isn't expecting him and he will punish that servant. I don't know when I'm going to die. You don't know when you're going to die. We don't know when the Lord is going to come. We don't get it right. That unfaithfulness that we haven't taken care of is going to catch up with us. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows of the flesh of the flesh will reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. If you sow unfaithfulness, you will reap trouble. 
It may not sprout up today or tomorrow, but it will come. Michelle has been reading uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little Girls, going through that series of books. And Natalie, um, a couple of weeks ago, asked me to read to her. Um, she wanted me to read um, the story of Alonzo. And, and in this, you have who, the, the boy who eventually became Laura's husband and his childhood and his upbringing. And this particular story describes the planting process that they had to go through. And, and from Almanza's perspective, he's watching his dad sow the seed. And it's not in these, you know, computer-driven tractors that we have today that plants everything in perfect rows and perfect spacings. But instead, he has a bag of seed and he throws it. And as, as it's described, the father says, a man never, never knows how good of a sower he is until it's too late, until that seed has now become plants and rises up out of that ground. And then you realize how good of a sower that man is. And the father told a story to Amonzo about a wicked boy who was told by his father to go sow the seed of this particular field. Well, the boy, as boys tend to be, wanted to do something other than sowing seed. So he went out to the field and he dumped all the seed into the corner of the field and went on his way. Nobody know, knew that he had done that except himself until that seed started to sprout. And then the field was bare except for in one corner. And I imagine the story doesn't have to be told. I think we can make an assumption that trouble came on that boy. A lot of trouble came on that boy. But it's something that's hidden for a while. The trouble came. I don't know how good of a sower you are. I don't know what you're sowing to, to the spirit or to the flesh. If you're being faithful to the Lord, you will reap what you sow. And I will reap what I sow as well. I can't help but think of something that Moses told the children of Reuben and Gad. They were on the east side of Jordan. They had conquered Sihon and Og, the kings of, of the east side. And the Reubenites and the Gadites, they said, you know what? We really like this land here. We, we raise cattle. We raise livestock. We, we want to live here. Can we have this land? And Moses was furious with him. He said, have you forgotten your history? Why should you live peacefully while your brothers are on the other side of the Jordan fighting? So Reubenites and Gadites said, here's the deal. You give us this land, and we, we'll, we'll build these cities for our families. We'll build ship, uh, walls for our flocks, and then we'll go fight the battles of our brethren. And we will fight until they get their inheritance, and then we'll come home. And Moses said, deal. But then he said, but if you don't do this, Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. If you aren't faithful to your promise, your sin will find you out. And it's so interesting how that holds true in our lives. Sins that we commit and we hide and we bury, we try and forget, or maybe we do forget, that sin finds us. And we have to pay the consequences of those sins. 
So as we consider our own lives, we think, okay, we've talked about Israel a lot and its unfaithfulness and how trouble came. What about me? How do I apply this to myself? What kind of, what areas of my life will unfaithfulness bring about trouble? I'd like to start with where it started with Israel. They quit fighting for God. They're given this nation. They're told, God will fight for you. Purge and annihilate all of the people. Get rid of those false gods. And they did for to an extent, and then they quit. They decided, let's be at peace. Let's settle down and relax. Trouble comes when you quit fighting for God. When you quit fighting the Lord's battles and fighting for Him, trouble will come. Never, ever give up. Perhaps the most obvious area of unfaithfulness is regarding our sin and a lack of courage to get sin out of your life. Where we fail to critically examine our lives and cleanse it from all forms of sin and rebellion. Romans 6 2. We, we turn to Romans chapter 6 all the time to talk about baptism, which is great. We need to do that. But don't forget the first two verses. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? What's the answer? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? God's grace and His mercy is powerful. As, this, as one of the songs that we sing, it is, His grace is greater than all my sin. But don't sin on purpose. Get rid of your sins. Be faithful in purging your life of that wickedness. Some sins are easier to purge. We look at these bad habits that we have, and some of them we can easily say, I can do without that. And we get rid of that. But then there are those few things, those hooks are deep in our heart. Perhaps they're the greatest struggles that we have. Those that caught into our lives early in our ears. And we hold on to them. And perhaps if we're honest with ourselves, because those are the things that we really enjoy doing. Those are the sins that we really don't abhor as much as we ought to. And we embrace them and hold them tightly in our heart. That level of unfaithfulness will bring about trouble if we don't take care of it. These sins are parasites to our souls, robbing us of the resources which are meant for God's glory. And they take far more than we expect. One of the habits our family has on Monday nights is watching uh, Nature on PBS. Um, the habit of Sarah and Ashton is to watch it. The habit of Natalie is to fall asleep while we're all watching it. It's becoming Dad's habit too, actually. <laughs> but we watched one about the the rainforest of of the Amazon, and there's this little there's this plant that's called the strangler fig. It's fascinating. The seed will fall from the canopy and it will get caught in the nook of another tree. And the water will, will cause that seed to sprout. And that seed may be 10 feet from the ground, 30 feet from the ground, 50 feet, whatever. It grows two ways. 
It grows up and the roots shoot down as quickly as it can. Once those roots reach the ground, that host tree is dead. Because that tree, that, those roots then start digging into the ground and robbing that host tree of the nutrients from the soil. As that, as those, those initial roots take, grab, get into the ground, more roots come down and they surround that tree. And then the branches go up and they surround the tree. And what do trees do as they get older? They get bigger. These vines do the same thing. They compress and compress and compress on that host tree until the host tree no longer has the ability to transport nutrients up to the top. And it dies. It has strangled it. And over the years, that host tree will rot away and what is left is a shell. A shell of the parasite that killed it. Your sins are a parasite. And if you don't get rid of them, they will kill you. And what will remain of you is a shell. And it is sin that defines that shell. Sin will cost you more than you are willing to pay. Sin will take you further than you are willing to go. But all sins don't begin as blatant rebellion. All bad habits don't start out that way. They can begin as simple lapses in our judgment, when we cons- which we may consider as inconsequential aspects of our lives. And eat, we say, well, they're easily justified. These are harmless things. It's not that big of a deal. It's just a little seed that got caught in the root of that tree. It's not that big of a deal. I'm going to miss a couple of services because I enjoy going to the game. I'm going to, this movie or this book, I, I know it has a few inappropriate images or themes, but it's not that big of a deal. I know this friend has no desire for the Lord. I know that they do things that, that I really shouldn't be doing. But I tell you, they're really fun to be around and we always have a great time. These are betrayals of the Christian life. They're small betrayals, but they are that seed of unfaithfulness that takes root. We have let our guard down and a parasite is entered in our lives. The second aspect of faithfulness that I want to encourage us is raising our children. For some of you, that was a long time ago. Some of you, that is a long time in the future. But for some of us, it is right now. I'm running out of time with my daughters. Parents, God has entrusted in your care the precious souls, and you only have one shot to get it right. One shot. That's it. There's no mulligans. There's no do-overs. You have one shot to get this right. Your children may not want to fight the battles for the Lord, but you better fight their battles for them. Proverbs 22.6 Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. We could have a lot of discussion, lively discussion about what that verse means and what it doesn't mean. But I'm trying to grow grapevines. I'm trying. It's not going particularly well. I bought six last year and five of them died. So we're trying it again. 
But when you raise grapes, there's this process that's called training the grapevine. And it's fascinating. We have wild grapevines all across our country. They grow in our trees. They grow all across the fences. They're not good. They're poor producers of grapes if they produce anything at all. The grapevines that are in our vineyards that I'm trying to, 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 to raise have to be trained. When those vines start out young, they're pliable. They can be moved. And you tell that grapevine where to go. I want you to go straight up. Get to a point, stop growing. Branch out. Those branches get to a point, stop. Now start producing fruit. A young grapevine can be moved and fashioned in various ways. But an old vine is, is unmovable. It is stuck in its ways. If it has kinks in it and crooks, you're not going to get those out. It has been untrained in its youth, and it will not change. Train your children when they're young and when they're pliable, when they can be molded, and when they'll listen to you, actually listen to you. Because if you don't, and they create bad habits that guide them away from the Lord, it will be a very, very difficult road for that mature vine to fix itself. Fight the Lord's battles for your children. Because the unfaithfulness on my part today with my children it does not affect just three souls. It will My unfaithfulness, if I don't raise them and teach them and guide them and fight those battles while they're in my home to teach them to fight the Lord's battles, it affects their husbands. It affects their friends in and out of the church. And then it affects their children and their children's spouses and their grand, and, and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren because I didn't do what I was supposed to do. Now, while I may be enjoying God's blessings, I may have a hundred grandchildren who are outside of the Lord because I chose not to fight the Lord's battles with my children. <clears throat> a faithful life is more than just purging sin, but getting rid of bad habits for, from our lives. For the Jews, it was more than just avoiding people who had practiced idolatry. It was much, much deeper than that. I'd like for us to turn to one final passage in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, starting with verse 43. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. If you just purge bad habits out of your life, get rid of sin out of your life, you've done a good thing. You've kicked out that evil out of your house. But what did this evil spirit find? There was no resident in the house that he left. It was still empty. And he went back home. 
and he brought a whole bunch of his friends and he made it worse. If you kick sin out of your life and these bad habits and don't put Christ in its place, you have an empty house in your soul that will be filled again by Satan. It doesn't matter if you just get rid of sin. It doesn't matter if you just get rid of bad habits. If you don't put Christ as king of your life, you've gotten it all wrong. If you don't faithfully turn to Him and lay your life at His feet so that He can live in you, trouble will still come. If you have not made that choice, and you know you need to make that choice, why are you waiting? If you know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you know that He died to forgive you of your sins, and you know that you believe this, and you want to take care of it, and you're tired of sinning, then come. Come forward. If you have been a Christian, or you are a Christian, I should say, and you have quit fighting and trouble has come upon you and you need the prayers and the encouragement of the saints, then come. Consider this as we stand and sing the song of invitation.